Hello, and welcome to the latest DSE Beechcross Lawcast. My name is Emma Fuller, and I'm Head of Motor and Casualty Market Strategy for the Claim Solutions Group of DAC Beechcroft. In this series, Helen Mason, Head of Vehicle Hire and Damage at DAC Beechcroft, is joined by a number of colleagues to discuss the latest hot topics from our recent Credit Hire Annual Conference. Hi, and welcome to our second edition in this Credit Hire mini-series podcast. I'm Helen Mason, Head of Credit Hire here at DAC, and I'm joined today by David Fardy, barrister at our in-house chambers, 8DB. At our recent Credit Hire conference, David spoke about two real key areas in the defence of credit hire litigation, the first being intervention, and second being making protective offers, whether that be by Calder Bank or Part 36. So let's get into the detail and find out um, what judges think in courts across uh, England and Wales. Um, So David, I think the first case is all about intervention and was heard in the Wilsdon County Court um, literally last month. So yeah, tell us all about it. That's right. Well, thanks again for having me. Yes, this was one of the cases that one of my colleagues did uh, within ATB and uh, a great result. Uh, Ultimately, 72% reduction in the claimant's higher claim. And the reason for that was a well-pitched and well-drafted intervention offer uh, sent by our insurer client. The offer itself was sent by email, it was sent by text, and it was sent by telephone. So there was certainly uh, every effort made to show that the claimant had in fact received the offer. The offer itself went into what the judge called considerable detail. uh, And ultimately the court found that that intervention offer ought to have been taken up by the claimant, uh, noting in particular that the letter itself wasn't an unpleasant tone. It recommended that the claimant take uh, independent legal advice. Uh, And the judge was kind enough to go so far as to say that this was, quote, one of the best intervention letters he'd ever seen, both as to its timing and its content. Um, So high praise indeed from uh, from judges who are no doubt used to seeing uh, a plethora of intervention offers across the country. And I guess that case just goes to show it's not just the content of the letter or correspondence that's key here. It's it's the tone of the letter that's really important. Absolutely. And the case law is really clear. Um, Copley and Lawn and uh, Sace and TNT are both clear authorities for the idea that you can't be seen to be cajoling or in any way influencing adversely the behaviour of uh, the claimant uh, when you are the defendant. Uh, you have to be making sure that your your letter is informative, uh, but it's also not swaying them in any particular way or pressuring them. And the judge was very clear that in this case, uh, the letter was well drafted and it, and it made clear that the claimant had fair opportunity to take full account of the, uh, of the offer that was being made. And I think in the case that you've just spoken about, um, not only was it a really good letter in terms of content and tone, um, but we could establish that the claimant definitely did receive it um and i think again that's that's really crucial here because quite often i see come across my desk really good letters but i just can't establish or or prove that the claimants received it and i know they're gonna probably say that they didn't uh, receive it so um, i guess that was really key here as well wasn't it you're absolutely right. It's a uh, it's a perennial problem that we see that uh, courts will often have evidence of an intervention letter, but no evidence that it was in fact sent, or at least not sufficient evidence on the balance of probabilities to show that the letter was sent and was received by the claimant. Uh, here, the insurer client's policy was to send it by email, by text and by telephone. So there was really no way for the claimant to suggest that they hadn't been made aware 
of the presence of this offer. So that was the first case that um, you spoke about. There's another one uh, as well. This time we're in Bradford County Court um, a little bit prior to the to the one we've just spoken about. And that was that was back in August. Yes, I mean, similar learning point uh, in terms of the efforts made to show that the letter had in fact been received. But something that this particular uh, insurer client did was make sure that there was a telephone call between them and the claimant uh, following the accident and prior to any intervention offer being made. That initial call allowed the insurer client to set up a secure and, and effectively a validated form uh, of means of contact of the claimant so that when a letter was able to be sent to the claimant's address it was also sent to the claimant's email address that email having been provided in the course of the phone call the letter itself that was sent to the claimant's address was also sent via stamped recorded delivery and the benefit of course of that is you've got proof of postage uh, and you have clear evidence that the letter was received at the claimant's address even if of course later down the line claimant attempts to argue that they were never made aware of that offer or that letter. Thanks, David. And I mean, we've spoke about two courts um, here, um, you know, Bradford and, and and Wilsdon. I think one was heard by Deputy Judge Brown and then the other, I think, was um, Deputy um, District Judge Foster. But what's your experience kind of, you're out, I know, um, here, there and everywhere um, doing these hearings for us. I mean, what's the general kind of feeling out there within the judiciary about this defence argument around intervention? Uh, well, I think from a defendant perspective, we always uh, want, uh, first of all, the best evidence. And courts across the country do tend to take a fairly uniform uh, approach to this particular argument I have found. That isn't to say that there are some courts across the land that are maybe slightly more claimant friendly or slightly more defendant friendly in their general approach towards credit hire. Um, is, as regards intervention offers, the, the key question is always, have we done enough to show A, that the letter was received and B, that the letter uh, was sufficient in its, in its content? And I think I've certainly found that judges across the country tend to take a fairly balanced view of that. I guess in conclusion, to wrap this, this part up, I mean, I think what we're saying is, you know, if, if we get this strategy right as, as defendants, um, certainly as uh, those uh, working in, in insurance companies on, on the front line pre-litigation, you know, if we get this right, um, then it can be a really highly successful defence strategy. Absolutely. And uh, when it's prepared well, it's prepared thoroughly, you've got a good documentary chain uh, showing things like proof of postage, uh, and you've got a carefully balanced letter in terms of its content and tone, we can make some real savings. Okay, so um, let's move on to the, the, the second area that, that you spoke about. And that was all around, you know, making protective offers. And we're going to talk about Calder Bank and Part 36, I think, here. And I know with obviously the, the, the start of fixed recoverable costs for us in Credit Hour on the 1st of October, I think, you know, we've already spoken uh, quite a lot about the importance of, of pitching offers uh, at the right amount uh, and made in, in the right way. So I think the first case that you spoke to us about was was again another one that was very very recent but this time we're we're in Wales and in in Swansea before district judge Bennett Yes, that's right. A claimant brought a claim for hire of about £24,000. And prior to the issue of proceedings, uh, the defendant had made a cold bank offer, which had offered about £8,500. 
uh, by way of compensation. Claim ultimately issues its litigated right the way through until trial, and the claimant failed to beat that offer. Now, the claim itself was allocated to the fast track, um, but ultimately the court was prepared to order that the claimant pay the defendant's costs of the entirety of the litigation. Um, And the real benefit, I think, of this particular case is to show that the form in which an offer is made pre-issue isn't necessarily that important. I think there's always a little bit of concern sometimes on the part of insurers about putting forward Part 36 offers as opposed to any other form of offer. Here, we had a simple Calderbank offer that the court recognised ought to have been taken up. It was a sensible offer uh, and ultimately the claimant failed to beat it. Uh, Of course, Calder Bank offers don't come with an immediate uh, form of costs outcome like the Part 36 regime does. But you do have the general principles on costs under Part 44. Um, And the court was very much engaging with those in saying, well, the ultimate costs outcome has to follow the event. And the event here is that the defendant has beaten an offer that it made before any of this started. Um, So a really, really positive outcome. I'm I'm certainly very pleased um, that the judge took a very sensible view on the appropriate costs order in that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think there's there's another case here. And um, what I would just say uh, to our audience is um, this does make me chuckle because on the slide deck for our, our conference, um, I think, David, you chose a picture of, of, of Bullseye. And I think, was it Jim Bowen who presented Bullseye? The legend himself. Um, so that did make me, me chuckle. But um, talk to us about this case, which, uh, again, a 2023 case, but this time we're up in uh, Lancaster County Court. Yes, I mean, the reason for the bullseye picture is this was very much a case of uh, the claimant, here's what you could have won, um, because the claimant had a, a, a claim which uh, ultimately entered, ended up in judgment at £40,000 um, at the trial in July. But the defendant had placed a, a well-pitched Part 36 offer uh, across the claimant in May, um, and that meant that, of course, defendant beat uh, that offer, notwithstanding the fairly high judgment sum. It was a well-pitched offer, and it was pitched uh, in particular to take account of what we considered on the defendant's side to be strong basic hire rates evidence. Those were the subject of of challenge by the claimant in the form of rebuttal evidence, but ultimately the court uh, disagreed. Um, And again, the benefit of, of this particular case as a learning outcome is that Part 36 offers, when pitched well, offer you protection even in cases where you're going to end up paying out a fair amount on damages. Um, And sure enough, in this case, we were able to get our costs from the expiry of the Part 36 offer. uh, And those, of course, included the costs of going to trial and arguing about the the success that we ultimately achieved. I think, as you say, a really good working example of of the power of, you know, protective offers and and, and Part 36 offers. And um, I think going forwards as well, I mean, now, yes, we have got fixed recoverable costs, but um, I think they're going to become more important than than ever when you start to analyse and look at, you know, the amounts that the parties are able to recover. Would you agree with that? I would. And, and I think certainly the, the impact of fixed recoverable costs on the Part 36 regime works both ways. Um, yeah. Obviously, from a defendant's perspective, we want to ensure that we are pitching well-placed offers so that if we end up having to run to trial uh, and we succeed in beating those, we get our costs. But of course, the new uh, fixed recoverable cost regime includes that 35% penalty um, if we don't engage uh, as defendants with well-pitched offers on the part of the claimant. So Part 36 has always been a a very useful uh, regime to, to try and explore and encourage settlement without having to go to a hearing. But certainly in the fixed recoverable costs regime, we have to be aware uh, of both the benefits 
and the implications uh, of offers from both sides. Yes, I, I think the message there is, you know, ignore offers and part 36s that come in, um, you know, at your own peril, really. It's it's crucial that, you know, post that comes in is is looked at and, and, and analysed and there's that kind of thought process around actually is does this offer put me at risk and should we be accepting this because if I don't accept it what are the potential cost consequences later on down the line absolutely and if I can cheekily add that of course money spent on council's advice might be uh, cheaper (laughs) might be cheaper than council's fees at trial then um, then that can be no bad thing (laughs) thanks David Um, well I think that brings us to an end uh, of our conversation today looking at judicial appetite Um, certainly in relation to intervention and then also the making of kind of protective um, offers. Um, Join me next time when I'll be joined um, by Kay Sutherland and also Michael McLaren. Well, we'll be taking a real close look at what's been going on in the credit hire arena north of the border in Scotland, uh, but also over in Northern Ireland as well.